1: Holy war in heaven, Batman, from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and I don't know about you, but my motivational hang-in-there kitten poster is just not cutting it anymore in the chaotic, cataclysmic, COVID-19-covered, dumpster-fire, dust-plume of a year that is 2020. Maybe it's mass ritual fatigue, as almost nothing seems genuine, the symbolism is off the charts, and everything we're presented with seems designed to drive us mad. Not even the sad state of Hollywood can muster up a spoonful of 8mm sugar to make this mind control medicine go down. Many guests have informed us of the importance of controlling the culture, and I look around America and I see very little that isn't cooked up by think tank roundtables, corporate boardrooms, or derived from the six sorcerers of Silicon Valley and their digital demonic overlords. But here to toss my flailing stoner frame a life raft to stay afloat in the rough and choppy waters of the vast conspiracy is our synchro mystic savior, the great Chris Knowles. You should know Chris well by now, as this marks his eighth time on THC, and his Secret Sun blog is surely on a lot of your short lists. In the shows of podcast past, we've talked about everything from prophetic singing sirens and Lucifer's technology to NASA rituals, deep state design tragedies, esoteric agendas, UFOs, aliens, demons, and archons, oh my. He's the man behind amazing books like Our Gods Wear Spandex, The Secret History of Comic Book Heroes, Secret History of Rock and Roll, The Mysterious Roots of Modern Music, Clash City Showdown, The Music Meaning and the Legacy of the Clash, and He Will Live Up in the Sky, a novel full of conspiratorial rabbit holes and a Pandora's box of parapolitical goodness. Quite literally, emerging from the darkness that was a near week-long East Coast blackout, my friend and yours, our favorite synchromistic web weaver and conspiratorial data detangler, here to make sense of a long year of masks, kneeling, and I can't breathe in, Chris, my man, welcome back. Yes, we are back. (laughs) We are back in black. Yeah, man. I am psyched. The world is on fire, but the power is back on for you, and I hope you're doing well. Thanks for doing this again and again and again, man.
0: Oh, it's always a super, super pleasure. I love doing the higher side chats. I was trying to bug you at one point in time to... Or I was thinking of bugging you to make me a co-host, but I don't think that was going to fly. I was like, man, man. Greg needs a co-host. Maybe I should hit him up. But yeah, it could
1: fly because a lot of people think I'm slipping, but it's hard to keep your finger on the pulse anymore because things are moving so quickly and I get fatigued. I, I need a break once in a while to get back to regular life because everything's just
0: so heavy. Yeah. Regular life is no longer on the table. I'm afraid to say we are way past crossing the Rubicon at this point in time and the new abnormal is the way it's going to be from here on in I am afraid in some regards that this is just a prelude to an even greater spinning of the gyre but we'll see what happens but I've been very busy lately (laughs) I've been very busy this year doing this work, keeping track of all these things, because like you said, there is so much going on. And in the midst of it, we got hit with the Isaiahs and all the biblical and prophetic connections that that might have, knocking out the power in New Jersey for a week, good week. I think some people are still without power. And within weather that you didn't really want to be without air conditioning and refrigeration. I had to throw out like $300 worth of food, but I'd like to say that these are things that we don't have to get used to that. These are just little blips on the map, but my pessimistic side says that this is going to be a very integral part of the new normal. I'm afraid.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. And it's a real red flag that our, Systems are breaking down so much so that they can't take care of the easy shit like trimming the branches around power lines so you don't have a disaster situation. And I don't want to be alarmist, but I also feel as if it's dangerous to say, just hold on a little longer and things will go back to normal because in that mind state, you're not prepared for a level change that I do think might come next year due to what The experts are saying about the space weather. It looks more intense, not less. And that's always something I want to keep in mind. But last time we did this was back in March with Gordon, where we tried to make early sense of the coronavirus ritual. And I think it holds up quite well. I just listened to it. But now that we've been living in it for the last four months, we have a lot more context and have had a lot more time to think. Have your thoughts on the whole thing changed at all or as has time only confirmed and reinforced the things you were thinking in March?
0: Well, what I've always felt in my gut is that this is all a preparation for something else. My thinking now, given all the events that kind of get backpaged, so to speak, in the media that aren't being, you know, plastered all over the headlines, but are very unsettling, is the continuing escalation and the breakdown of just normal diplomatic relations between ourselves and the People Republic of China. There are things going on that are just absolutely alarming. And I think that given how intertwined our economies are, and particularly intertwined you know, in the West Coast of the United States and Canada as well, I think we're looking at a very messy and sticky situation. One of the things that I've been keeping my eye on is this rather draconian lockdown that they're experiencing in Victoria, Australia, and that to me feels very much like a live-action drill, considering the fact that we've heard so much about Australia being in the crosshairs. If things do explode, God forbid, let's just say, between the United States and its allies and China and its allies. We've had the down right near you. I mean, you probably saw the smoke plumes from the fires of the Bonhomme Richard attack ship in the naval shipyard Mm -hmm. down there. It was being repaired and it was on fire for like four days. And that was a vessel that they were looking at as being very integral to any sort of actions in the South China Sea. You know, that there's a standoff between the United States and the People's Republic of China over these Erzatz islands. They're just creating out of whole cloth and calling them territorial waters. So we're looking at a very nerve wracking situation. And I also put the things in the context of. I guess this aircraft carrier earlier that had an outbreak of, of coronavirus, and there was this whole controversy with the ship's commander, and he was fired by the Secretary of the Navy, and so on. But there were also events that have seemed to have fallen down the memory hole where there seemed to be electronic interference with naval vessels operating in that area, causing collisions with like fishing boats and so on, and near and collision with two naval vessels crashing into one another that seems to be unexplained the US Navy is something that too many people pay too little attention to because they basically run the world they keep the shipping lanes open they keep piracy from basically crippling the entire world's economy and not only piracy say freelance pirates in, in somewhere like somalia or something but you know state actors like we're seeing in China, just deciding that the South China Sea is their territorial waters and proving that by creating islands out of nothing.
1: Hmm. Yeah, a lot of people have talked about those ships colliding and stuff as incompetence, but maybe it's some form of sabotage. I would believe that. I believe
0: it it is sabotage. I I honestly do. I, I think all these events that we're seeing with the U.S. Navy are deliberate sabotage. I don't think that they're chalked up to incompetence or accidents, I do believe, just because of the context that we're seeing these things take place in. And I think that the real red flag here is the Bonhomme Richard catching fire for no apparent reason and burning for four days at the San Diego shipyard.
1: That was very strange, and I don't even live all that close to the area, but I do remember that day. I have a bad sense of smell, and I was like, oh, something Smells good. I guess a neighbor's cooking, and my wife is like, "That's plastic or something." That's... <laughs> uh, she's like, "That's not a good smell." And then, of course, we saw the news, and it's like, "Holy shit!" That shouldn't even really reach where I am. But you mentioned Victoria, and that is a big thing for people who don't know what's going on in Australia. They were doing door to door knocks for their lockdown, and if you wouldn't answer the door, is a five thousand dollar fine if you weren't home. Crazy. I sent that to Gordon when I saw it and he was like, "Yeah, man, once a prison colony, always a prison colony." And uh it's it's really just sad to see, but I have long thought that Australia is like a mini US or a lot of a lot of agendas happen there in that microcosm that maybe are derived from the think tanks that try to get things done here like, you know, removing all the guns and You know, just in the stuff we're seeing in these lockdowns, they seem to have greater success with their operations when it comes to the people there. I don't know why, but uh, it's definitely something to watch. Because it's a
0: smaller population. It's a smaller population. Right, right. You know, it's easier to do these kind of mass, like say mass seizures of firearms and so on when you don't have 350 million people to contend with. And, you know, also don't forget uh, New Zealand, but. Let's look at this in the context, because I think sort of the daily back and forth we see on places like Twitter sort of obscure the larger picture, which is that Australia and New Zealand as well are part of what's called the Five Eyes, and the Five Eyes being basically Great Britain and its former colonies having this worldwide network of surveillance- and monitoring of activities that they, the five eyes, you know, the five spies, basically, uh, sharing information, basically having contiguous intelligence resources. So Australia, again, I mean, look where it is, right? If things do go south, and again, let's hope to God that they don't, Australia is going to bear the brunt of it. You know, I don't believe that we would see, you know, this massive mobilization of troops and equipment and airplanes and so on. I think that we would see something very different. It would be sort of like a a lukewarm war, (laughs) let's just say, you know, rather than a cold war or a hot war. But again, Australia is highly cognizant of where they sit in relation to the belligerence to these five eyes alliance here.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, when it comes to coronavirus, I remember asking you about symbolism and syncs within the narrative. And it was probably just too early at the time. But like you've said before, everything is star magic. And in April, you wrote a post called Space is an Altar Swan Swan H. And in it, you point out that A few years ago, the UK ran a pandemic simulation called Project Cygnus, Cygnus being the swan constellation we've talked about before, but also how a ton of swan stories hit the media, including one that Queen Elizabeth's swans maybe got killed from bird flu, a bird flu outbreak, and that this Cygnus, Lyra, Draco part of the night sky in Chinese astrology is called the Court of the Celestial Market. And its northernmost region is called the Butcher, which is also where the constellation Hercules is. And Hercules is the patron of Florence, Italy. Obviously, I'm summarizing a lot of stuff. So we have Draco the Dragon, a.k.a. China, right there with Hercules, a.k.a. Italy, who was hit so hard, sitting above the northern crown, a.k.a. Corona Borealis, in an area of the night sky the Chinese called the Court of the Celestial Marketplace. I mean... Seems to be a lot. It's the narrative laid out in the stars once again.
0: Yeah. (laughs) This has become more and more a focus of my work. And I kind of stumbled and bumbled upon it. It's not something that I was intending to stick my nose into. But one of the maps that I created for the post, and if people are interested, they can just go to my site and look the post up. But it really starts with... Cassiopeia, which is the sitting queen, you know, it's the queen on her throne. So you talk about all these weird events in the UK that involved swans. And this to me just absolutely reeks of ritual that somebody had stabbed and beheaded a number of swans in London parks in late 2017. And this was shortly before the queen swans were killed by that bird flu outbreak, right? So we're talking about a year or so after Exercise Cygnus took place in the UK. And this was a secret exercise, by the way. This is something that was only revealed to the public in April of this year. And that's sort of the basis of this post that you're referring to. But, you know, I've always been looking at Lyra because of Vega and so on. And Cygnus is of high interest to our space agencies and telescopes, you know, they seem to have a lot of interest in the area of space between Cygnus and Lyra, you know, why exactly, you know, you can throw up whatever theory you choose, but, you know, you can't argue, you know, that the Kepler mission is very much focused on that area of space. And, you know, this ties into what we talked about so much with Las Vegas, what I call heaven upside down in Las Vegas back in October of 2017. So we had a number of very strange stories emerge out of the U.K. having to deal with swans dying or swans attacking people. That was another interesting and strange story that came out of the U.K. that a, a swan was known for attacking tourists in an English river and then was suddenly vanished. So you kind of wonder what happens with there. So if you look at that section of space, you do you go from Cassiopeia, which is the sitting queen. And I've since identified that with Babylon the Great, you know, the fallen Babylon the Great in Revelation 18. So we go, you know, directly from Cassiopeia to Cygnus, to Draco, and Draco the dragon, you know, and dragon, is as you said, is obviously the symbol of China. And then that takes us down to Hercules, and Hercules has a couple of interesting things going on. One is, as you mentioned, it was... The patron of Florence, as far back as the Renaissance, and and has always been sort of identified symbolically with certainly Greece and Italy. You know, we we have Heracles and Hercules, and was very much a, a symbol and actually had become sort of a solar savior god in late antiquity. But Hercules in that constellation is seen as confronting the hydra, you know, the poison, the toxins guarding the golden apples. And of course, as you mentioned before, that connects us to Corona Borealis, and then that takes us down to the serpent bearer and all these symbols of Draco and, and your know, Hercules with the, the Hydra and Hydra itself and Ophiuchus, which is the serpent bearer. I mean, these all have very powerful and very ancient connections in every religion that you can name. But again, like I said, the thing that really struck me is that, you know, traditional Chinese astronomy and astrology has, you know, entirely different meanings to these constellations. And the constellations are entirely different. And again, that connection with the court of celestial market being in the exact area of space is Hercules. So you have, you know, markets and butchers and Measuring cups and all these kind of symbols connecting to that. And those are the kind of things that just, when I see that stuff, it really, it just, you know, I feel this pressure in my sinuses. I I feel this, I just know there's something there. It's like some sort of instinct that has this physical reaction, that psychosomatic reaction, I guess you would say. But again, I can't rightly say what and who are trying to manipulate the star magic, but it just seems to me like a very strange and very specifically organized coincidence for my liking.
1: Yeah, it shares too much of the same shape, and they should be completely unrelated things. And I guess to get into the next stop on the Ritual Tour of 2020... Let's talk about the deep dive you've done into Ghislaine Maxwell. Ghislaine, I wish her well, Maxwell. Yeah. And uh, that whole arrest ritual. I call it that because you call it that, but also we have no mugshot. We have no perp walk. The judge ordered some of Virginia Goufray's evidence to be destroyed the day before the arrest. Mm Mm-hmm. And her charges are also so light, it's ridiculous. She's only being charged with something like luring a minor across state lines for sexual purposes, specifically between a set of just a few years in the 90s. So right on the surface, that's a very light charge considering what the victims have been saying her involvement really was. And it just seems like a sham, but it also goes a lot deeper, doesn't it?
0: It does. And one thing that I've always said throughout the entire length and breadth of the secret sun blog is that ritual is everywhere and that people who are in very high places and and highly placed in various sectors of our government and corporations and military believe things that we don't and believe things that we might not even be aware of existing and the great example that i would Point to this is Michael Bloomberg, the multibillionaire, having this weird fixation on Mithras and feeling that he had to actually move the Mithraic temple that had been found during an excavation in London into the center of his new headquarters in london and that seems maybe a little bit trivial to some people, but if you look at it in the context of Mithra symbolism that I've done a lot of work to point out like for instance the mithras symbolism in rockefeller center and the fact that 18t which is again now one of the biggest and most powerful corporations in the world has the winged version of mithras as its logo its official yet secret <laughs> mascot i guess you would say is mithras and then of course there's the statue of liberty which is not a woman. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a man. It's Mithras. You know, there were some interesting news stories that came out a few years ago that talked about how the sculptor had modeled the Statue of Liberty on his brother and not his mother, as usually been assumed. But mm. if you look at Mithraic mysteries, it's very similar to, like, say, a form of Freemasonry that there are initiatory degrees. And the second initiatory degree is Nymphis. And that's where all the plebes, the pledges, so to speak, dress up in female clothing and makeup and so on. And I think you can probably imagine what the purpose of that was, because there's another fraternity that Michael Bloomberg is a prominent member of in Manhattan that's filled with all these movers and shakers. And the plebes and the pledges also dress up in... Women's clothing and makeup, and somehow pair off with the older <laughs> members or the higher degree initiates of this group. There's been a number of stories, like in New York Magazine and so on and so forth. So, this stuff is real. This stuff exists. It's pretty much out in the open. It's not necessarily secret. It's just that most people either ignore it or don't understand what they're looking at. And in the case of Ghislaine Maxwell, I mean, what I've said all along is that I see the Jeffrey Epstein situation as a waterloo in this war of heaven that I've been talking about for a number of years, and Gordon also talks about. I think that the arrest and subsequent apparent murder of Jeffrey Epstein is a lot more significant than anyone realizes, and I think it has much farther and more profound implications than people are really talking about. This would be speculation on my part, but I was actually out in California giving a deposition in a lawsuit the day that he was arrested. And I noticed that the wagons seemed to circle, so to speak, after that event. And the whole tenor of the case really changed quite radically following his arrest. I think that Whitney Webb has done some fantastic work looking into the involvement of like the mega group and Mossad and all these big power players backing Epstein. And there's been a lot of talk from people like Maria Farmer that Ghislaine was actually the the brains of the operation. And she was sort of inserted into the Mossad orbit through her father, who was very deeply involved in those circles as well. He was also involved in doing work for MI6 and the CIA. I mean, you know, I personally believe it's all just branches of one organization anyway. But I just think that this was all a big ritual because I think they knew where she was all along. You know, there's all these ridiculous stories planted in the media that she was hiding under, you know, the Antarctic ice or she was hiding on the tip of K2 and the Himalayas (laughs) or something. I mean, just like she was everywhere, but where she actually was. But actually last summer, there was a story came out that she was, right in the midst of Lovecraft Country, you know, not the rather feeble looking HBO series coming up, but, you know, actual Lovecraft Country where he based his stories. She was living with a guy named Scott Forgenson, who some believe is her secret husband, and we can get into him when we talk about Wayfair, but living with him at his mansion on the, the coast of Cape Ann in Massachusetts there, and then she somehow manages to find herself in the the Piney Wilds of New Hampshire, and she's arrested on World UFO Day. And then the next day, Jan Harzen, who was the executive director, I guess, for international relations or something of MUFON, is arrested in Manhattan Beach. No, I'm sorry, Huntington Beach, on a sort of Chris Hansen type of kitty sting. And that, to me, was just very bizarre and compounded, A few days later, when a guy by the name of Krista DeVries, DeVries, I think it is, was arrested in Conway, New Hampshire, which is a little nothing postage stamp town at the end of the Saco River on the border of New Hampshire and Maine, where for some reason, Hillary Clinton, at the urging of John Podesta, was led to announce her support for, you know, investigating the UFO cover up and all the She's going to get to the bottom of this. We actually talked about this back after the election in 2016. We talked about that whole thing. And, you know, this guy who was involved with like Black Lives Matter and defund the police and so on, and seemed to be like a local political functionary was arrested and all within a very short drive of where Ghislaine Maxwell was arrested. But the thing that really just and we you know, we can talk about Crowley in a bit, but the thing that just blew my mind wide open was when I discovered that Ghislaine Maxwell's sister is married to the son of Frank Molina. And Frank Molina was the man who started Jet Propulsion Laboratories with none other than Marvel Parsons, a.k.a. Jack Parsons. <laughs> and you just sort of, you see that and you just think like, wait a minute, what the hell is going on? Like, what is the story here? particularly seeing that she was arrested in this rather bizarre and specifically unsettling alignment that connects the place where Betty and Barney Hill claimed to have been abducted by aliens and then where Alistair Crowley spent a summer on a lake with a woman named Evangeline Adams, who was a very famous astrologer and pop cultist, And he had actually written a letter to the New York Times complaining that he was being menaced by uh, ball lightning and so on. (laughs) And then, you know, if you go further south from there, further south from where Ghislaine Maxwell was living, you wind up right down in the area of Massachusetts where Jack Parsons' parents were living and were born and raised, incidentally, before they moved to Los Angeles. So that kind of specific alignment, again, it's, Getting back to this whole thing with the star maps and so on. It just seems a little too precise and connected, you know, and obviously connected with Parsons' relationship with Crowley and her personal relationship to the man who started Jet Propulsion Laboratories with Jack Parsons. And interestingly enough, I mean, you know, there's a number of stories and seems pretty solid information that Ghislaine Maxwell was involved with Mossad and the Israeli military. And Jack Parsons himself, before he was, uh, I mean, I believe he was murdered, you know, I believe his death was sabotage, was going to move to Israel to work on their rocket program for the military. So there are all these just connections just weaving in and out of this that your head starts to spin after a while, and you know, particularly with Ghislaine, the fact that she was a submarine pilot. <laughs> you just like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> what? I, you know, it's funny. It's almost like kind of a tragic story because you know, she seems like an extremely intelligent woman, you know, speaks a number of different languages and has all these skills and so on. I mean, I guess these are the people that intelligence agencies look for, right? Mm-hmm. You know, her father was one of these billionaire frauds vanished off the coast of the Canary Islands. His naked body was later found washed up on the shore there, but there were a lot of reports at the time that he was murdered because he was in such horrible financial shape that he was going to sell information that he had gleaned from Assad to other intelligence agencies and so on. So yeah it's just a whole big mess, but you know it all seems to come back over and over again to the same handful of I don't know if you call them memes or tropes or symbols, but when you see these things repeat over and over again, particularly like the waters and the navy and lovecraft and you know all those connections to the siren and so on, you really start to wonder if this isn't all just sheer happenstance, you
1: know yes, yes. And that's a, a great breakdown of everything I had on this list. But you see those same weird, potent themes and players. We're looking at child sexual abuse, UFOs and the New England area. And of course, the Navy is all up in them guts. And, you know, just to make the case for people that are like, well, not everything's multigenerational. I'm not connected to what my dad did. You know, that's. Totally separate. Maybe you're making leaps, but not really. Because you mentioned Whitney Webb, and I just listened to an interview she gave, and she's talking about Ghislaine's sisters. And apparently, one of her sisters, or I even think two, are involved in some high level security software, kind of like a Promise Software 2.0 mm-hmm. thing, because their dad, of course, was involved in that scandal. So there's definitely a multi generational component to what's going on there. And I was just looking at this. So, Our Gods Wear Spandex came out in 2007. The first Iron Man film came out in 2008. Nobody cared about superheroes or could have predicted that Hollywood would devolve into basically only superhero movies at that time. And last year, He Will Live Up in the Sky came out. And like clockwork, its contents are spilling out into reality. Again, we never want to give too much info away about a novel, but the backdrop for the book, and some of the major themes are both major bullseyes for some of the wild threads of 2020
0: and some of the stuff we're talking about right now. (laughs) Yeah, I don't claim any prophetic powers. I think that I was just, a lot of the themes that you're talking about, I had written about originally in 2015, and as I mentioned the last time I was on your show, or the time before that, I started working on this book five years ago, and it just took me a long time to get going. But, you know, yeah, the fact that we have this connection with UFOs in New Hampshire certainly caught my attention when Ghislaine Maxwell was arrested. It just seemed a little bit on the nose. And, you know, one of the things that I've written about recently and I've written about for several years now, I've written about originally in the Lucifer Technologies series back in 2016, 15, was, you know, the fact that that area of northern New England has. A lot of whistle stops on the UFOlogy greatest hits. We've got the Hill abduction, and we've got the Nine, and we've got the Allagash abductions, and we've got Betty Andreassen, and we've got Tom Reed. You just have one sort of major hit after another. So the fact that Ghislaine Maxwell was kind of living in the midst of all this is rather curious to me. And again, that connection with Hillary, who she was very close with. She was very close with Chelsea, attended Chelsea's wedding, you know, went on vacations with her. I mean, she was very close to the Clintons and then the Clintons, you know, connect you to Podesta and then Podesta connects you to DeLong and to Mellon and to Elizondo and Semivan and just this whole group that are pushing this whole TTSA situation. And then, you know, one of the things that I pointed out in the blog before is that, you know, To the Stars Academy is the English translation, roughly, of the company that Jack Parsons started when he was booted out of Frank Molina's Jet Propulsions Laboratory. And that was a company he started called Ad Astra. And Ad Astra, you know, in Latin means to the stars. And he was getting involved in weird metals, mystery metals that we recently saw Connected with the long and Hal Putoff and Elizondo and this program they have on there called Unidentified. I mean, it's just such a weird thing because I don't think there's a huge hue and cry for UFO disclosure in the public, really. I don't think people really care. I think people are kind of over it at this point in time and don't really pay much attention to what's going on, you know, other than sort of your hardcore people. Certainly the media is trying to drum up interest in it, I don't think they've been terribly successful, but I think that UFOs have you know a much larger meaning in this constellation of ritualism that I've been talking about for several years. And I think the fact that you know they clearly knew where Glaine Maxwell was, I don't get the sense that her arrest was a surprise to her. I think that it was pre-announced, so to speak, and they probably knew where she was all along. You know, and then Trump says, "Oh, I wish her well. I think it's pretty clear that she's turning on her friends and providing information and so on. I think that's sort of the backdrop to there because you know one of the things that I've pointed out is that if trump, if he wanted to sort of dodge that, he could have very easily done so. He could have just said, "Well, that's an ongoing investigation, and I can't really comment on that." But he made a point to say he wished her well, and I, I think that he was announcing to people that might not be in the loop anymore that she was coughing up information. And, you know, sort of the things that we've seen, these very weird things that we've seen in the past month, I mean, this July was just jam-packed with you know, this kind of stuff. You know, one of the things that I would point out is the attempted assassination and the murder of Judge Salas's, Judge, it was Anita Salas, not far from me in North Brunswick, you know, a town I actually know pretty well because had a good friend who lived there for a number of years. So her intended assassin was clearly an intelligence agent. And if you looked at his resume, you know, he'd worked for that black box (laughs) kind of group. You know, I mean, he was was involved in all these kinds of CIA front cutout organizations. But the one thing that I had read is that when he was in Moscow, one of his jobs was trying to find, you know, all the money that Russian bankers had squirreled away that they owed to Deutsche Bank. So he already had, I know that Whitney had, Whitney Webb had talked about that. So he had already had a pretty direct connection to Deutsche Bank. And you can sort of tell by the way the press, the media kind of handled that, that that was like a very, very hot potato that they didn't want to touch. And they sort of, Driving the whole incel MGTOW kind of angle for it, <laughs> but their hearts didn't really seem to be in it, and it very much seemed like a hot potato. But the interesting thing when you talk about these alignments, and I have this weird, like, cartographical fixation that I'm always looking at maps to sort of see how these things align. But so we had that, obviously, Galen inspired. Deutsche Bank attempted hit, or if not an attempted hit, a clear intimidation. And then we had that whole thing burst out with Mayfair, which I know you wanted to get to in more detail. But you know, one of the things that i would written about in the blog is that I actually lived for several years, three doors down from the kid at the time who became the CEO or the co-CEO of Wayfair, a guy named Stephen Conine. And that was, you know, not too far from where this whole thing went down with this judge in Deutsche Bank. But the thing that really struck me is that, you know, when you talk about the symbolism sirens drowning, water, Lovecraft, you know, the whole kit and caboodle, one of the things that sort of prefigured this is that there was a very, very strange event in East Brunswick, not too far from Obviously, from North Brunswick, they're both on opposite sides of the city of New Brunswick, which is where Rutgers University is. But a woman, her father, and her child had all drowned in one of these three and a half foot above ground pools, and you know, nobody could figure it out. You know, right. it just it was just a total mystery. But then there was this whole story that this woman shared a name with somebody who was involved with the Gates Foundation and was handling all this money and, you know, these stories sort of filtered through. And you kind of wonder, is, is this misdirection or is this just the broken reality construct just misfiring? And, you know, it's very hard to say. I mean, a few days or a couple of weeks ago, they came out and said, oh, you know, there's a part or a portion of the pool which was seven feet deep. They didn't even say it was a deep end. And I looked at the photographs of the pool and I couldn't see any evidence of a deep end. It was just a very bizarre story. I mean, I don't know what connection it might have to the Salas situation, but the fact that you can kind of draw this triangle, this pretty neat triangle between the Wayfair kid where he grew up in my old neighborhood there and North Brunswick and East Brunswick. And sort of in the midst of all this is Trump National in Bedminster, you know, where Trump spends his weekends and, you know, there's been a lot of talk that something big is going down in Washington, you know, maybe to do with the whole Obamagate thing or whatever, and that he's going to sort of hide out there because of all this stuff going on. I mean, one of the things that I heard of today, you know, today while we're recording is that somebody had shot at an Air Force helicopter from, I guess this was down in North Carolina, I think. So there's a lot of strange things going on. I mean, I live, you know, Bedminster where Trump is is literally next town over from me. It's the next town down the highway. And I've been hearing a lot of military helicopters. There was a couple F16s that were flying around last week I think it was because some small sort of propeller planes had breached restricted airspace. So there's a lot of just strange stuff going on and I think things are going to get very hot. You know, one of the predictions that I've been making and I don't like to make predictions, mostly because I usually, um, my predictions fail. But <laughs> one of the things that I've been predicting, and, and I feel still very strongly about it, is I don't think there's going to be an election. I really don't. I think that this is all pantomime, and not very good pantomime. They're going through the motions, but not with a great deal of enthusiasm. I think there's going to be a national emergency called within the next several weeks, and the election is going to be postponed. Hmm. perhaps indefinitely. It just seems to me that all these things with COVID and shutting down all these sports seasons and shutting down, you know, the movies and Hollywood and pretty much everything, you know, one of the things that's just so shocking and you just know you're not in Kansas anymore is that reading that there's an article in New York Times yesterday that all these major retail chains are all fleeing New York. And, they, you know, they're certainly going to be fleeing Minneapolis and Seattle and Portland. I think that there's going to be a massive exodus out of the big cities and you kind of have to wonder, like, why? Why all of a sudden is this happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that it is connected to what I, I still feel very strongly is that we're looking at down the barrel of some kind of a national emergency being called sometime in the late summer, early autumn.
1: Yes. And with the election it's already primed that no matter who wins or what they say happens, it will erupt into a civil war because neither side trusts the integrity of elections. And that's only going to be exacerbated when it actually happens or doesn't happen. And yeah, you named a lot of good stuff when I was trying to put this together, I had to cut out a lot of stuff because you've been covering a lot of content and a lot of it is these weird tangents of, People drowning, people getting thrown off their apartment building. Just there's a lot of deaths going on. There's a lot of pieces on the table that are moving around. And, you know, we're talking about the election right on the heels of Biden choosing Kamala Harris as his running mate. And I've already seen the very funny joke of Biden-Harris 2020, (laughs) cop-a-feel. It's just a very funny joke. Way to express, it doesn't make any sense. They're doing defund the police at the same time they're electing her, whatever.
0: That's all kind of just the circus of politics. But I think it's interesting that, you know, the two people running were the two people that were very heavily vetted during the primaries and the two people that generated the least amount of enthusiasm among any of the primary voters. You know, I mean, Kamala Harris dropped out pretty early in the process and Joe is just sort of limping around. Trying to figure out where he was and what his name was before the people who run the Democratic Party panicked over Bernie Sanders possibly winning the nomination and just sort of took poor Joe, who really needs to be put in arrest home at this point in time, and crowned him their candidate. You know, they've done a very good job at hiding him for the most part. And what we've seen of him, you understand why they're hiding him. I just don't get the feeling that you run that ticket when you really believe that there's going to be an election. So here we are in, we're getting in mid-August, as we're recording this, it's the 12th. In a normal election, right, we would have the conventions by now, wouldn't we? The party out of power usually has their convention in July, and then you know, the party holding the White House usually has their convention right about now. And we're hearing all these stories that it's just going to be like this online thing. And it's just like, are you kidding me? Are you seriously kidding me? I mean, it's just going to be like a Zoom meeting. you know? These. <laughs> and, you know, I've had people tell me, well, you know, everybody knows who's going to win. And it's, you know, in mystery, everybody knows who they're going to vote for. You know, first of all, not everybody knows who they're going to vote for. I don't believe that at all. And secondly, the conventions are not just you know, to nominate their candidates, it's part of the campaign. It's a huge publicity infusion for them that's very important to these campaigns. In the past, you've had candidates that didn't seem to generate a lot of excitement. And once the convention rolls around, then it sort of fires people up. And they're just going to have like these lame virtual Zoom conventions. Come on, I just don't buy it. I seriously don't buy. And, you know, you talk about like the whole election. thing. I think that that's one of the reasons that we won't have an election because we are having these sort of LARP cosplay riots going on in Portland and in other cities and so on. Then we're having sort of these these big shopping spree riots going on in in Chicago and, and so on. That would be nothing if there really was a serious issue with the election, because the right has pretty much been just sitting on their heels and just watching, you know, sort of enjoying these democratic cities tear themselves apart, right? I mean, Seattle and Portland are the two most liberal cities in the country, and probably Minneapolis is third. I mean, all the most liberal cities in the country are just sort of self-destructing. It's very strange, and it's very weird to me. And it's not normal. It's just not normal. It feels contrived. It feels orchestrated and the problem is is that even contrived and orchestrated riots you know there's what they call king mob you know king mob is the collective intelligence or lack thereof of the mob and the mob is going to do whatever it wants you know whatever it decides to do it follows its own impulses it doesn't really care about like what george soros or john podesta want anymore you know or bill gates or whoever's i mean i know that's a lot of big corporations kind of putting a lot of money behind this stuff, the protests and so on. So when King Mob takes over, it doesn't really care what the paymasters think because the mob gets drunk on its own power. So it is all just very strange, but I haven't been able to parse the exact liturgy, let's just say, But it does, you know, again, it feels very ritualistic to me. But everybody's, you know, everything has felt very ritualistic to me for the past several years. I I would say it sort of started in the Gothard Mountain display in Switzerland, which was just, I don't know if you saw that. I'm sure. The siren call. No, no. Is that uh, what you're talking about? No, the Gothard Mountain thing with the devil and the underground, you know, when they built that tunnel in Switzerland –
1: Oh yes, that's ringing a bell. The ritual they did to open that tunnel. Yeah, when I saw that,
0: I was just like, "Oh, wh- wait, what? Uh, what's yeah. going on here?" And it's interesting too because my interpretation of that ritual was just entirely separate of what they said it was. You know, because I, you know, I was familiar with the symbolism that they're using, and it's just clear to me that that's Jupiter Amon, aka Pan, you know, aka whomever. You know, the horned and hidden god that I think is sort of at the center of this entire cosmology. And I think that, you know, seeing that people just see horns and just go, oh, it's the devil, you know? I mean, I don't know where that actually comes from. <laughs> you know, there's nothing in the Bible about the devil having horns. But I think that people are just conditioned to see that. But he was the horned, and hidden god. You know, if you look at images of Jupiter and Mon, and I don't know if I've talked about this on your show, but, you know, this is the god of Alexander the Great. You know, this is the secret god of Roman emperors throughout history and beyond. So. When I saw that kind of symbolism burst through and of course all the things with the Super Bowls and so on that I've been writing about and, you know, the real dumb, obvious stuff that you see on like the Grammys and so on, I mean, ritualism has just become so in your face and blatant that it's almost like there's this kind of cognitive dissonance around it that people just they can't recognize what they're seeing. They don't understand that what they're seeing is a you know, very specific liturgy that comes, you know, from ancient sources being played out in the guise of entertainment or of art you know it's not that it's a form of ritual entrainment and it's only going to continue and increase in the years ahead
1: Mm -hmm. well said and i definitely want to talk about the protests and secret gods and you mentioned corporate involvement in all this you had a great line that Amazon is, of course, the biggest benefactor of the lockdowns. And Starbucks has declared themselves the official coffee of Black Lives Matter. These are West Coast companies, West Coast liberal companies. Seattle companies. Yeah, exactly. And obviously things have moved on to Portland a little bit, but it's in the soup. And. I wanted to go back to a post you made in June titled The Rites of Spring that is largely about George Floyd and everything that has followed. Mm -hmm. It starts with an anecdote where you and Gordon had a talk about mass ritual and how long it would be before we see an actual human sacrifice on TV. And I agree that that happened sooner rather than later. If you consider the George Floyd snuff film to be a televised sacrifice, which it kind of is. And. I'm sure it's one of those things people have heard too much about already, but you cover some really interesting esoteric aspects that I think are worth mentioning. In the piece you say, the more I look at his life and death and put it in the context of the overall re-paganization process, more precisely, to revive the ancient cults of state, the more he looks like a victim who is very carefully chosen, or targeted rather, for very specific reasons, and to bring about very specific outcomes. I mean, that's provocative. Elaborate on
0: a little of what you're seeing there. Well, there are a number of things. It's a show unto itself, really. What we saw, I think, rather quickly is that what was unfolding really had not a lot to do with George Floyd and and more to do with I think, sort of a pre planned agenda whose origins I haven't yet been able to ascertain. But I think that, you know, the fact that this is taking place during the whole coronavirus thing and, you know, the whole litany they're hearing with I Can't Breathe, you know, we're hearing this a lot of protests and so on. You know, and the fact that he was a pretty troubled guy, he had a a pretty serious criminal past. But, you know, one of the things that really, really struck me. Is that it, you know, it came out that he had done this porno film, you know, at least one porno film, and he had this huge phoenix tattooed on his chest. And I was just like, "All right, just stop." <laughs> you know? It looks like a, a phoenix riding above an AK-47, and you know, of course, we've seen the AK-47 meme emerge during the riots and so on, you know, because there's this whole romanticization, you know, the Soviets and the Chinese and the AK-47. But so what he has is that he has a phoenix rising from an AK-47 tattooed on his chest. And we see this in this porno he did with this young woman who had another. I'm just trying to find where she had an interesting. She had a
1: butterfly tattoo on the small of her back. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's it.
0: Thank you. No worries. <laughs> but, you know, this happened in late May. And I've talked about late May with the Jeff Buckley situation, right? I mean, Jeff Buckley drowning, obviously not being able to breathe. Same, you know, that final week, that last week of May, there was that very odd, very phallic SpaceX rocket launch yes. a couple of days after. Well, it was actually, was scheduled originally two days after his apparent death, and then I think it was delayed to the weekend. But, you know, you really just have to wonder, because we know, know Elon Musk is tied up in so much weirdness with these launches. And, of course, the obvious, the dragon. I mean, there's the dragon again, right? I mean, this was a launch of the Dragon capsule aboard the Falcon 9. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know what I mean, it's like when I see SpaceX stuff in the news and I just see all this, just like punch you in the eyeball symbolism, you just have to wonder, like, how did people not pay attention to this? You know what I'm saying? First of all, all his rockets all look like giant vibrators, <laughs> you know? And then he uses this dragon symbolism and it's like the dragon being launched to hook up with the International Space Station, which I call ISIS. And that a few months earlier, Grimes had done this video called So Heavy I Fell Through the Earth, which is, you know, basically sounds like a Cocteau Twins outtake. And it's the whole thing is the dragon and this kind of Michael character in space. So it's clearly that Revelation 12 narrative again. It's almost too much to even wrap your head around. And I'm sure that if you just have no context for this, you just like this guy is insane, you know, bust out that it's always sunny in Philadelphia conspiracy theorist (laughs) meme, you know, because this this guy's, but it's just like, you really have to follow this stuff for a number of years because it's just over and 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 over again. And it just breaks you down, you know what I mean? You just, you can no longer, you know, ascribe things to coincidence, a happenstance, you know, particularly when they just really, hit these beats you know one things that i talked about and i know that the late tracy twyman and i had talked about actually you know shortly before she sort of vanished before she died talking about the genuflecting you know and we talked about that on your show as well Mm -hmm. with you know the 49ers and the four nine and that whole symbolism Stephen paddock's birthday being four nine and that whole thing with NASA and the astronauts—I mean, just it's just over and over and over and over again, just hitting these beats over and over again. And then the kneeling that we saw with the police—and you know, the one thing that I've been pointing out for years is that the Fraternal Order of Police is it's just another Masonic lodge, and it's pretty obvious by the symbolism that they use. And you know, one thing I don't know if I mentioned this on your show either is that you know, and I had a friend, and she had told me that you know her husband had joined the New Jersey state police. And, you know, they made him become a Mason. They made him join a lodge that that was like, that's what you had to do. So, you know, again, there are just so many things going on and the public is so easily distracted and it's just so oblivious to the antecedents of this, that all the symbolism that we're discussing, you know, kind of in a haphazard manner at the moment, but You know, we're kind of jumping around a lot. But all the symbolism that I referred to has, you know, very clear, documented precedent and antecedents. You know, it's not just things that I'm just pulling out of a hat. It's all things that tie to very well-established and and well-known ritual and mythological and religious symbolism and liturgy. Yes. You know, it's interesting. I was – and another – sort of rebel scholar who passed away a few years ago was Acharya S., who had written The Christ Conspiracy and a number of other books. I mean, I was friendly with her as well. But one of my criticisms of Acharya is that she would sort of draw on kind of like these late Victorian, quasi-occultists, sort of quasi-theosophists, people like Gerald Massey. And I mean, I know she was a big Massey fan. And I think that none of that stuff has really held water. It hasn't held up to scrutiny. When I go for this stuff, I'm not looking in sort of obscure texts, trying to trace the symbolism back. I'm looking at things that, you know, are in Wikipedia or Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, things that are very well established, very well documented, because you have enough of a fight trying to convince people that this is real and this is really happening without having to lapse into a lot of cultic, pseudo history you know
1: (laughs) yes it's true and you definitely threw a lot out there i wanted to frame up part of this with uh, my notes here but as you say we've seen a lot of police kneeling this year and you point out how intertwined freemasonry is with police departments across the country and that kneeling like this originated as the freemasonic action of genuflecting to honor Hiram abiff also the kneeling trend was started by Colin Kaepernick of the San Francisco 49ers, who have an obelisk as the big city center icon. And the 49ers cheerleaders are called the Gold Rush. And of course, the Cocteau Twins have a song called The Gold Rush Dust, where Elizabeth Frazier repeats, in the gold dust rush, I only genuflect. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and some more icing
1: on the synchro cake for people familiar with previous shows we've done or who follow your blog. The woman who owned the nightclub where George Floyd and Derek Chauvin worked calls herself La Sirena Major on Instagram or The Great Siren. Also, the girl who took the video of Floyd's death has the last name Fraser.
0: <laughs> yeah, and one thing that I found out in the interim is that, so her name, the woman who allegedly took this video, was named Darnella Fraser, right? And one thing that I found out subsequently from Elizabeth Frazier's sister is that her family calls her Ella. You know, so it's like that—that mm. that darnella. <laughs> you know, I mean? it's, like, it's almost like a little pun. You know, it's almost like we're being trolled by the gods of sync. I guess you would say. But yeah, it's—you know—I have reactivated my Elizabeth Fraser blog, and boy, it's amazing. Me, you know, when I take all the stuff that I sort of blogged haphazardly over the years and just kind of put it all together, it's just like, yeah. But it's just part of this overall thing because you know, so many of the things that I was talking about back in 2007, 2008, and people are just like, what are you talking about? You know, for instance, the 17 meme, right? I mean, that's one of the first posts that I put up on The Secret Sun was about the 17 meme. And now you have all these cute people talking about 17 all over the place. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And, and you, you start to notice that this whole 17 thing is just everywhere, right?
1: Yes, we're seeing it a lot. What do you think it means for people who
0: might be lost? Well, okay. The thing that I sort of got on the whole 17 thing is, you know, I was looking at one of the things that always struck me about St. Patrick's Day, and I did a big post on this, is that St. Patrick's Day just really seems to be like just the Bacchanalia, the ancient Bacchanalia from Rome. I mean, it was literally the same thing. I mean, not even remotely different. It's astonishing. And of course, St. Patrick's Day was not a creation of Irish Catholics. It was a creation of Irish Protestant Freemasons. Uh, That's another thing that people seem to forget. But anyhow, you know, the whole thing with the bacchanalia is that, you know, you get together and you have these parades and you get drunk and you eat beef and cabbage. <laughs> it's, it's just astonishingly the same thing. It's just ridiculous. But this all stems back to Osiris because Bacchus Dionysus, you know, as a lot of people understand, is, is an incarnation of Osiris, is a version of Osiris. He's either directly drawn from Osiris or they have the same antecedent, a shared antecedent, but Osiris, and this ties back to the genuflecting because Hiram Biff, as a number of scholars have pointed out, is clearly Osiris, right? So 317 is the date of Osiris's death at the hands of the jackal headed demon god Set. And that the 17 thing, the importance of the death of the 17, it almost sort of like became like the way 13 emerge from the suppression and the the execution of the Knights Templar, right? And the whole thing with Friday the 13th being unlucky springs from the the arrest of the de Molay and all those people in Paris at the hands of King Philip, right? So why is Friday the 13th unlucky? You know, how did this emerge in the culture and it all ties back to the Knights Templar? And similarly, this whole thing with 17 ties back to Osiris and that 17 became some sort of code using the Roman numerals for 17 in ancient Rome. It's like, this will be the day I die or something. Some sort of code that had to do with death and misfortune and so on. But, for instance, the Freemasons, the Grand Lodge of England, was officially established on St. John's Day, 1717. So you just see 17 emerge over and over again. You know what I mean? It's just something like the Ohio flag of 17 stars, the Sacagawea gold dollar that came out in the year 2000 had 17 stars in the back. It's just something that occurs very frequently in a lot of this esoteric symbolism. And of Mm -hmm. course, the Q people, since Q is the 17th letter of the alphabet, have picked up on this as well. You know, ironically, though, I mean, Barack Obama was like really OCD about 17 he'd always be giving these 17 minute speeches and showing up at various places on the 17th i mean that's something that i you know back in sort of the stone age of the secret <laughs> sun i was documenting quite a bit obama to me is like seems to be somebody who has very serious ocd and i say this is somebody who has very serious ocd because i can recognize the signs you know he keeps all those charms in his pocket and so on he has a lot of obsessive behaviors ritual behaviors over certain dates and certain places, you know, he had this fixation on Gus Grissom and so on. But to me, like ritual behavior at its core is sort of driven by OCD. You know, I think that ritual behavior is a result ultimately of anxiety and anxiety, you know, driven by uncertainty and maybe even just sort of a free floating anxiety and that the rituals and you see this a lot with OCD people like, you know, the whole stereotype of hand washing and so on, you know, a way to sort of control the anxiety. And I think that the ritualism is very closely tied to the anxiety, which makes me wonder, since we're seeing this explosion of ritualism that's being paid for by tax dollars and corporate dollars and so on and so forth. You really have to wonder, like, what are these people feeling so anxious about, you know?
1: Yes, yes. Well said. And to uh, throw a few more logs on the rites of spring fire and just run through my notes here, which is some of the things you said, some you didn't, but you write, one of the central tenets of ancient paganism, aside from blood ritual, check, we got that, is phallic worship. Yes. In that light, I can't help but notice that the SpaceX Dragon launch was scheduled twin days after George Floyd's death, so having the Falcon's phallus return the dragon to the stars with twin astronauts that particular week can't help but get my attention. Same goes for them stalling the launch 17 minutes before it was set to go the first time. Remember that Horus the Falcon returned Osiris, who died on the 17th day, to the stars. Then skipping ahead a bit, there were many ancient gods associated with the sacred phallus, but the most visually striking of them was Priapus. Priapus? Mm -hmm. Priapus. Yeah. yeah. Festivals, Festivals of Priapus were held in June, coincidentally enough. His sacred animal was the donkey. Ding, ding, ding. And his Roman name is very close to mutiny or rebellion or resistance, if you prefer. So great stuff. And just making the point that these are star magic rituals and space is an altar. So we have the ascent of the sacred phallus, the week of George Floyd's death in the Twin Cities. And then a story comes out that scientists have discovered a mirror image of a planet and star that looked like earth and the sun located 300 light years away. Where in the constellation Lyra, I mean, boom, there it is, which is next to Cygnus. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you throw something up and space calls back. We talked about that with Oumuamua, and it's always in that mix. It's very strange. Well, I would just
0: sort of qualify that a bit because one thing that i I've become very skeptical about astronomy and astrophysics and all these stories that we're hearing from these telescope missions and so on. And the reason being is that you just hear like so much ridiculous nonsense being put out by these agencies, you know, you know, things about black holes and, you know, the universe being shaped like. A donut or a potato chip or, you know, a pretzel. I mean, just like it's this constant speculation that's you know, what is it really based on? You know, I mean that's one of the things that I have a a major problem with is that we're making all these definitive statements that, you know, there's water on this planet that's three hundred thousand light years away. Well, you know, how do you really know that? You know what I mean? I I've become very skeptical of science overall since we have what's called the replication crisis, where 70% of experiments, the results cannot be replicated or reproduced, which means the science is invalid, right? We're seeing so much of this. And I think that with one of these sort of pop astronomy stories that come out, I think that there's a lot of just nonsense being pushed on the public. But at the same time, I think it's ritualized nonsense. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yes. So, you know, I don't know whether if they really did find this twin earth and this twin sun, you know, the same week of George Floyd's death and the rocket and you know, the same week that led up to the, the festivals for Priapus and so on. I mean, I don't know if any of that's true, but the ritual component of that cannot be argued with. But another thing that I would point out, too, is a lot A lot of times when these stories come out, so say these stories come out at particular points in the timeline that ritualistically correspond to events that we're talking about. You know, when you sort of look at the fine print, like these discoveries were made like six, eight, 12, 18 months ago. You know what I mean? And that the, the stories seem to be held. For particular reasons, you know, we discovered this, or we think we discovered this, or we're pretending we discovered this, so our funding won't get cut, et cetera, et cetera. But the stories are released, you know, at timed intervals to sort of coincide with these launches and these major sort of geopolitical or social events that have the same sort of ritualistic context that they're looking to, or whomever is looking to capitalize on.
2: Mm hmm. mm
1: -hmm. And we have talked about that before, too. Like, it doesn't really matter if something is real. They put stuff out to get mental attention. You put mental attention on something, it generates energy, some story or announcement that comes out that we see scrolling through our black mirror phones. It really doesn't matter if it's real, if people trust these organizations and think it's real. There's something in play there. But also just to throw out a related tweet to all this, you wrote, Ancient phallic worship centered on martyred gods like Osiris and Dionysus. Huge parades would be held in springtime around the obelisk, like San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle all have, and protests look a lot like parades. Women would wail for the martyr, check, and men would publicly castrate themselves, which I think could be symbolized in militarized police standing down and kneeling to untrained youth. You know, soy boy, we could say, a bunch of these kids that really would get their ass kicked if the confrontation was allowed to happen. They're kneeling to these kids. But seriously, does a lot of that mirror what we've seen in the wake of all this? I would say so. And when it comes to the symbolism of the highly ritualized 2020, you also point out that the combination of kneeling, cops submitting, and mask wearing, it all has a very BDSM feel to it. And as strange as that is, I really don't think you're wrong.
0: No, I don't think I'm wrong either, but you know, that kind of BDSM and that kind of sexuality was also very tied up in these ancient rituals as well. I mean, you talked about the galloy, you know, who would work themselves up into a fever pitch, you know, these initiates and then take a piece of broken pottery and cut their junk off and throw it through somebody's window, you know, and the person who got the junk thrown through their window would have to give the initiate Clothes and food and money and so on and so forth. So, you know that kind of ties into the whole. You know there was a huge trans movement back in the ancient world, right? And I've really come to believe personally. I don't think there really were priestesses in the ancient world. I think they were mostly crossdressers or eunuchs. And I, I certainly believe this in, like, say, Mesopotamia, because you know one of the things you, when you start to look at Mesopotamia, it just seems to see that you know there's so many different priesthoods, you know, cross-dressing or trans priesthoods, with all these names. And you sort of wonder, like, were any of these actual women, you know what I mean? So it, it is part of the same process. And the phallic worship, it's part of this, and it's sacrificing your manhood, sacrificing your phallus for the great mother and for her martyred son, right? And, you know, we saw the photograph of the Washington Monument being struck by lightning that same week. And then there was this academic, I believe in Alabama, who was trying to goad protesters on to take down these obelisks. You know what I mean? One of which was a, I guess, for a Confederate war monument. I think that was in somewhere in Alabama. But then, you know, others were trying to encourage people to take down the Washington Monument itself, and and so on and so forth. So it's all this like phallic sacrifice symbolism. You know, the phallus rising to heaven. And then there's this whole weird fetishism that you see on Twitter with these women constantly berating men with their guns and saying they feel, you know, phallically inadequate, Mm -hmm. I guess, and need to compensate that with their guns and so on. I mean, you see this all over Twitter. I mean, it's basically like a truism among these people.
2: Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
0: But it again, it all ties back. It all goes back. And we're really seeing, again, like I said, and you mentioned before, like a repaganization process, but it's not like the kind of goofy pseudo-Christian neo-paganism of Wiccan or whatever, you know what I mean? It's the big, bloody, mass ritual, state cult ritualism that we saw in Rome that was really that was the social glue of the empire because, you know, a city like Rome, you had so many different people from so many different places. And, you know, they talk about like the bread and circuses, but, you know, the bread and circuses all had a very heavy ritual connotation. And then you had these the mass things like the bacchanalia. So it just seems to me that, you know, since we are this empire now and that we're no longer a nation right now, we're an empire. And we're sort of this conglomeration of people from all over the world with all these different beliefs and so on. That we're seeing this introduction of state cult mass ritual as a method of social cohesion. And this goes back as long as we have history. And when I wrote that article of the Rights of Spring, I was just, you know, looking at all these aspects of these news stories and saying, okay, this ties back to this. You know, you made some mention of some of the examples that I had given there, but it's just over and over and over again. And again, we're jumping around a lot, and it just seems like a lot to wrap your head around if you're not familiar with the context of all this, but it's just relentless. And if you understand, again, the history and the precedent for this, it's almost numbing because it's so relentless now. It's so relentless. It's just never ending.
2: Yes.
1: And it is a lot, but when I've been thinking about just everything that's happened in 2020, it seems like just a shitstorm of chaos. But then when I put it in this esoteric context, it actually starts to make more sense that everything we're seeing does seem to be some repaganization or a resurrection of cults of state, as you call them. And it almost adds clarity as weird as that sounds, but obviously we're not going to know who's driving this, but what do you think organizers really get out of making this happen out of making people, get out in the streets and subconsciously play along with a ritual. They think they're supporting one thing. They're actually supporting another. What happens there? Just I guess they have some way to capture that energy?
0: Or what do you think? The Stanford Research Institute put out a paper back in the 70s called The Changing Images of Man. Are you familiar with that paper? You, you might have heard of that. It does sound a little familiar. Well, there was a bunch of different scholars who were Anthropologists and so on, who are making recommendations for how to proceed. You know, this is sort of during the wake of Vietnam and and the protest movements, and you know, a lot of violence, and I guess sort of the early days of Watergate. So one of the people who was commissioned to make recommendations had said that what we needed was the sort of civic religion that drew on. They said more Egyptian antecedents, but, you know, similar to how Freemasonry incorporated these themes and these symbols and these rituals into their own practices. Right. So basically coming right out and saying, and this was, you know, SRI is a very big deal. I think it was probably even a bigger deal back then. But it's saying, you know, like if you really want to reconstruct society since people are losing faith in the old religion and technology has changed the way people behave and the way people see the world. A good thing to do or to try would be like, take the pageantry of Freemasonry, which is usually a pretty small affair. I mean, most lodges have, I don't know, maybe 20 people involved in these things and, and do it on a mass scale. So, I mean, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with this. I know I've talked about this in past shows. I don't know if I've talked about it here, but this was a very specific recommendation saying that, you know, if you really want to take postmodern society and put it back together in some sort of coherent manner that, you know, look what the Freemasons are doing. And in so many different ways, I mean, what we're seeing is drawing from that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's weird. Maybe it's something to the effect that if you can get people into the pageantry of something potent from the ancient past, maybe they're put into some subtle trance state or maybe they're just clearly controllable. Maybe they act it out without knowing because it's something in our DNA from the ancient past or something in the collective conscious. And it's just like kick over the snowball and like, let it roll. Because if you get them in this lane, they will just keep going in it and they'll just get stuck there. And I mean, it's all about control, right? So maybe this is just a technique to control people and keep them acting out a play. They don't even know they're acting out.
0: Well, I think one of the things is, that, you know, human beings are social animals, right? I mean, we need to feel like we belong to some well and we're certainly tribal right we we need to belong to some kind of tribe you know we need to be able to identify ourselves with some larger group i think that so much of what's going on like with this covid thing there's so much entrainment going on you know there's so much brainwashing going on and of course fear is the great motivator you know but the whole thing of wearing masks i mean back in february march you know the who and fauci and all these people saying you know don't bother with masks they don't really do anything and then all of a sudden you know just wearing a bandana on your face will save you from the bubonic plague somehow you know what i mean it's getting people to wear masks and then creating in groups and out groups like oh you know all these videos you see on cnn and sort of democrat twitter like oh you know this person was thrown a fit because they didn't wear a mask or this person got into a fight over a mask and you're just seeing this stuff all over and over again and people start to identify with like that they take sides it's like oh i'm in the mask tribe and you're in the no mask tribe you're a heretic you're a a blasphemer you're an outsider you're an outlander you know you're not part of our mask tribe and there's a purpose to this is messianic purpose that, you know, if you wear a bandana over your face when you go to the grocery store, that you're going to save all your nine-year-old grannies from getting coronavirus. You know, it's just, it's absurd. But when I look at the precedent for this during the Spanish flu era, I mean, the Spanish flu era was a very interesting time too, because you had the rise of communism, right? You know, everybody was terrified when the Bolsheviks took control of Russia. And then, you know, this was in the wake of World War know, which was called the Great War and the War to End All Wars, you know, there's a tremendous amount of social anxiety, there's a tremendous amount of fear, you know, people had experienced total war for the first time, you know, I mean, wars, people used to get out their lawn chairs and go watch battles, like during the Civil War, and all of a sudden, you know, they're dealing with cities being bombed and gas. and I think that the whole mask thing with the Spanish flu was a reaction to that. I haven't done a lot of studying to that, but that's just sort of, when you look at the timing, it's very interesting, right? I just think that now, it feels to me that, I mean, scientifically, I just don't see what wearing a mask does. And you notice that you never hear people talk about, like, washing your hands anymore. It's all like the mask, you know? But it's all like to get people to put on this uniform really you know it's kind of in training people to wear a uniform and you know one of the things that i talked about back when everything just went kerblewey in the wake of the whole highway 91 situation in mandalay bay in las vegas and whatnot was this whole like wear orange thing you know that seemed to be like one of the dry runs for this you know it's like getting people to wear orange and there was like any cause you know bullying gun violence whole host of causes that you know you wear orange with so that creates an atmosphere where like you know you're working in an office and it's like well we're gonna wear orange tomorrow because we're against something that everybody would be against like bullying and then you know somebody shows up like they're not wearing orange or they forgot to wear orange and it's just like you like bullying man what are you a nazi man you think people should be bullied what do you want to kill babies what do you hate puppies man what the hell (laughs) you know it's just like this insanity right
2: yeah. and
0: you just, you see this being repeated with the masks you know and again like you know one thing that we had talked about and i've mentioned a number of times in the past is that masks were a big part of a cult ritual and this dates back to the mystery religions i mean look at the whole thing with like the venice carnival right mm-hmm. Those uh, very iconic masks that whole eyes wide shut thing that you kind of see so yeah it, it's it's a form of entrainment but it's a form of tribalism and enforced or coerced conformity it's true you know a number of different things because again i mean it's like our masks really if you really look at the science they're not terribly effective but it's like one of the things i keep saying is that this is not an actual pandemic you know this is an epidemic with high-rate clusters, you know, and it seems like so fascinating to me that all these states like New York and New Jersey and Connecticut, you know, all these states that have had the real, obviously California, I mean, that have had the real major casualties. I mean, I think there are like just a handful of states that are responsible where the overwhelming majority of reported deaths attributed to COVID have taken place. and Somehow, these were all the same states that were having huge problems with their entitlements, with their pensions, you know, with Medicaid, with all these kind of burdens on their state budgets that had a lot to do with, like, having a lot of old people living longer and longer lives and drawing more and more public benefits. And isn't that an interesting coincidence? I'm sure it's entirely coincidence that, you know, you had all these people dying in nursing homes you know, that were being paid for by state Medicaid and federal Medicare or people who you know, were in their 90s or still collecting pensions from their janitorial jobs back in the 1950s or something. Yes. You know what I mean? You know, i sure it was just entirely coincidence that the pandemic, so to speak, seemed to cluster around these people who were costing these very strapped state governments a lot of money. Isn't that a fascinating, pure coincidence? You know, not even a synchronicity, just a pure coincidence, right? It's true. So, yeah, and there is a, a very heavy ritual aspect to this because I think the, just the act of wearing a mask to defend yourself against a virus upon which masks have no apparent or negligible effect seems to be a ritual in and of itself. You know, it's like getting back to what I was talking about with OCD where you're controlling your anxiety by indulging in ritualistic behavior. And I think, you know, a lot of these people, you see them walking down the streets by themselves and they're wearing masks or they're driving in the car and they're wearing masks. And I'm just thinking like, what is the matter with you? What is seriously the matter with you? And now like these governments are saying you should wear your masks at home. And if you're having sex with your girlfriend, you should both be wearing masks as if the exchange of fluids in other regions (laughs) We're not going to transmit the virus. It's just absolutely insane, you know? But it is obvious entrainment. It's true. And it is it is obvious. Like I said, it's a drill for something else. I said that at the beginning. And I just have to apologize to your listeners. Because at the time I was on the show, I was not very well prepared. And I had been sort of doing a lot of work. And my brain just wasn't there. And I, I don't feel like I performed. But luckily, Gordon picked up all the slack. But I still do believe that what is going on with the release of this virus some kind of drill or preparation for something much more serious than what we've experienced so far
1: i agree with you and coerced conformity is such a great term for it i see the same thing people walking their dogs alone with a mask on in san diego it's so crazy because all the restaurants have been allowed to operate in the streets you can't go inside anywhere but you can sit down in the streets. They've closed them so that places could set up tables outside. And if you're seated, you don't have to wear a mask. If you're standing, you do have to wear a mask. And it's like, well, is this a serious virus or not? Because you got people walking right next to tables of people with no mask. It just makes no sense. But man, we really did it. We packed in a lot of what I had planned. I would urge people to go check out your two-part post new scientism. It's a lot of good context. It's actually New Scientism, A Demon Haunted World After All, part one and two. I'm still so uh, looking
0: at number three. So I just, you know, by the time this goes live, I'll probably have number three up, hopefully.
1: Oh, well, great. Then maybe that's a better time to talk about it when the story is complete. But either way, thanks again. You're one of the greats and checking in with you definitely helps me feel less alone. People should already know about the blog, secretsun.blogspot.com. But remind them about He Will Live Up in the Sky, The Secret Sun Book Nook, and I guess a book on the Clash that came out just a couple
0: months ago? No, well, it's a book that I published back in two thousand and three. Two thousand and three. Okay. And I always wanted to get it back into print, but like there was all this nonsense. I don't even want to go into it. But I finally got it back into print and it's available print on demand. I mean, I don't know how many Clash fans you have as your listeners, but I hope a lot. <laughs> there, hope. there it is. There it is. And another thing that I'm preparing, first of all, the blackout gave me like a real opportunity to get really deep in the weeds with the sequel to He Will Live Up in the Sky. So it just goes to show you when, you know, Lucifer's technologies are not clouding your mind, how much more productive you can be, right? So wow. I, I am working on the book, but I've also got a book that I've been working on for several years, sort of collecting some material from the blogs and stuff that I hope to get out in the fall as well. So it's very exciting.
1: Right on. Yeah. I thought that clash thing rang a bell, but Amazon sometimes trips me up with the listed publishing dates they put on there. So who knew,
0: but it's funny. You should mention that because what Amazon did is that when I posted the listing, they credited another Chris Knowles With writing the book. And it's, oddly enough, this other Chris Knowles is from Cape Cod and I think he's a retired CAA officer. Huh. I'll have to double check. Uh maybe we can I can call you up and do yeah, that's true. Uh I, I believe that, that that is true. So yes. it's always kinda of surreal. So yeah. Well, you're
1: in the story. Yeah, right. There you go. Well, very cool. Man, as always, really lucky to know you. Had a lot of fun. Thanks again and take care.
0: Oh. Always a pleasure and best of luck for all your listeners to navigate and survive the coming new abnormal.
1: (laughs) Cheers. It's the end of the world as we know it higher side chatters. How about that? We really got into it today. Chris Knowles, one of the favorites as always, although it is hard to identify if I feel better or worse about the state of things after talking to Chris, but I definitely like doing it. I think I feel better with the notion that people are just falling in line with some great ritual, as opposed to absolute and sheer headless chaos. But maybe that says more about me than anything. Always a pleasure, though. Chris has that kind of East Coast... Rough edge that I almost have a nostalgia for. Chris, I guess, just reminds me of the 90s in general, maybe. When men were men, goddammit, or something like that. Before Judd Apatow movies and too much microwaved plastic leaching into our food made us all betas. You know what I'm talking about. But I hope you guys get as jazzed up for Chris being on THC as I think you get. I know we had a bit of a long break there. People were starting to ask questions. But Chris's power was out for five days, as we said, and then it overlapped with a little trip that my editor was taking. So brave of him, I know. But here we are. We got it done. Although I always try to squeeze in more than we have time for. I really thought the whole second hour would be mainly about his new scientism, Demon Haunted World Posts but we really didn't get to it at all. Like he said, though, he's going to have a third part. Maybe we'll talk about it then. But I do think he's onto something by profiling that 90s era atheist movement, skeptics groups, and science-based media guys like Adam Savage and Bill Nye. That was all needed to tear down spiritual beliefs or belief in the paranormal or psi effects. Just the whole thing. It worked on me for a while, definitely. And it's a short, recent era that really got us to forget or deny a lot of important aspects of reality. Though the more important point is that it got us all to worship science. It made scientism the one world religion and one world government that we were always warned of. In a big way, it is church and state. Of course, this manifestation is probably not one that everyone expected, But there's plenty of blind faith, worship, and obedience to go around. And it seems to be a higher level of authority than governments, because look how quickly they fell in line with the whole thing. So in that sort of Dave McGowan way, where he looked at the 60s and saw a sea of Navy and military intelligence kids as frontmen for the most popular psychedelic bands... You can look back at the rise of scientism and its figures and this thread of Epstein funding, and it all gets quite interesting. I guess we're going to talk about it later, so I should probably just move on. But while it's fresh in my mind, I wanted to mention some of that. And scary to think that this could all just be a drill throughout 2020, or some precursor to several more layers of shit being laid upon the world in the future. You know, I'm never a big fan of theories that insinuate the elite are really making decisions for our own good, but I've heard some intriguing cases to be made that the masks and the pleas to stay inside and away from big groups are largely protocols for keeping the species alive during a stellar impact of some kind, one they might know is coming. Because of course they wouldn't tell us, but maybe they'd want to keep the system intact as much as possible this golden goose that they inherited from generations past. So they give us other reasons to stay inside and a reason for everyone to have a mask candy, because they might know something big is coming and it's the only little bone they're willing to throw us. It does get pretty interesting, but ultimately I think they're more willing to just watch us all die. And that said, another whole added element of the New England area breakdown concerning the hotbed of strangeness where Ghislaine Maxwell was hiding out in and where she was taken after the arrest is that it's all right in the middle of Lovecraft country. I don't know if you guys have seen the first episode of the HBO show yet, but it makes me think of times where they've say, opened up a famous pharaoh's tomb right before the Mummy movie comes out, or you'll see a quirky little story about someone finding a moon rock in their grandpa's storage right before they make some astronaut NASA circle jerk movie. It's like, would you look at that? Ghislaine Maxwell got arrested in quite a weird area. How weird, you ask? Check it all out in the new HBO series, (laughs) which is, you know, all right so far. But as for the higher side chats, that's the show. Nothing is genuine, we're all being initiated, and the new cult of state is in full swing. I suggest you find your faith somewhere else and choose a different altar to worship at, if any at all. Why not just be your own god and tell the old goblin king, you have no power over me? And with that, sign up for Plus if you want to hear the second hour, where we talked about Hollywood burning, the digital takeover... More signs that the end is nigh. All that good stuff. What does it matter? You'll sign up or you won't. Go with what feels right. Paywalls are a bummer, but I wouldn't be here without it. Or you'd be listening to a series of sad, pathetic ads I'm lucky I don't have to deal with. Oh yeah, and that other Chris Knowles is actually a retired analyst for military intelligence from Martha's Vineyard. So that's fun. But I'm getting out of here big thanks to chris and to you dear listener stay safe and keep saying i've done my part your move ritual makers sovereignty takers and priestly overlords of the new scientism order your fucking move
2: this is important hear what i said i'm trying to tell you it's not paranoia not in my head it's just the hard truth on your door while well, I still can. To ask you a question, cause I know your head is still in the sand. Don't be sheep to your slaughter for the rest of your life. Oppressed, oppressed, but you're getting woke. You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die. Tough luck, my friend. Did you get the memo? Can't you see that we're so. scary dark world, scary every day Scary dark world, no matter what you say Scary dark world, don't think we'll be okay Can't you see that we're so blue? You sit and wish, but we don't have a choice It seems we're stuck here you can find gnosis drown out the noise now use that altar end up your magic game and listen to THC you know you go with the entities if you ever see the UFO don't be sheep to your slaughter for the rest of your life oh you're getting woke. You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die. Tough luck, my friend. Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're come food? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this be stressed until the day you die. Tough luck, my friend. Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're